Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Midnight on Earth, that's right. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we are here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. Very excited that you're joining us today. We're going to be listening to another lecture from the other side, a lecture from someone who is deceased, has left this dimension, yet still teaches us the incredible Aldous Huxley. And if you know that name, you know that he was a significant figure in the psychedelic movement, also just the free-thinking philosophical movement of his time, an incredibly influential guy. Absolutely stoked that we're going to be listening to this lecture, and the lecture is called The Visionary Experience. So we're going to be talking about visionary experiences, and as usual with our uh, lecture episodes, Bryn Anderson is with us. Thank you for joining us, Bryn. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. I am stoked that you're going to be listening to Aldous Huxley with us, another person, like I said, that's teaching us from the other side. It's going to be really fun. We're going to talk about visionary experiences I love visionary experiences, Jake. Well, they provide visionary context and they give you these uh, glimpses into this other world that's so much bigger than what's going on in this third dimension. Before we talk about all that, though, before we go there, you know the drill. If you haven't done this already, I need you to go to Instagram and follow me at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That's the address. You can follow me there if you haven't already. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click the button that connects us forever. That way you know what's going on. All the fun stuff that we do on this wonderful podcast, you'll be instantly aware. And the most important thing is good old word of mouth. Tell a friend. Tell someone that you know that loves these type of conversations, that loves to talk about visionary experiences, visionary art, visionary, just being a visionary. Elon Musk, you know. Bring them here. They're going to love it. Midnightonearth.com. All right. So now that's out of the way, we're going to talk about Aldous Huxley. So if you don't know who he is, Got a little bio. It's called the short bio compared to the uh, long bio, I guess. But here we go. Aldous Leonard Huxley was born in Godalming, England on July 26, 1894 in an upper scale family. Came from a literary background. His father also being a biographer, editor, and poet. Huxley was educated in Eaton College in Berkshire from 1908 to 1913. Holy cow, that was a while ago. When he was just 14 years old, his mother died. During his teenage years, he also suffered from an attack of keratitis punctata and thus became blind for about 18 months. 
But then by wearing some special kind of glasses, he was able to recover his eyesight and also learn Braille in the process. He received a BA in English from Oxford. And then at that time in his life, he took up writing. He wrote several poems, which appeared in 1916, 1920, and 1921, where he blended criticism, dialogue, wit, and satire. He's incredibly important literary author. In fact, one of the most important of the that decade. And within a period of about eight years, he wrote several other books. He got a career in screenwriting in Hollywood as he wrote other books, but really where people know him the best or I feel like are from two books, the doors of perception and brave new world. We could be living in brave new world right now. He could have just been kind of like a Nostradamus psychic. I don't know, but the doors of perception is a book. It elaborates on his psychedelic experience under the influence of mescaline. He has a lot of different interests, but that's the one that really set the stage. This was prior to the 60s. This was prior to the hippie movement and and the, the beatniks. Maybe it was in the beatniks time or maybe right at the beginning. Incredibly influential book because it openly talks about the psychedelic experience, the shamanic experience, from the kind of Western physiological, medical mindset, you know, the material mindset. It put it through that filter, and it really, uh, I think it got a lot of people's interest in the time. They're like, wow, what, what are these substances? What do they do? I like to try them. <laughs> and, of course, Brave New World, the dystopian novel, which really served as a warning. Huxley died of cancer in California on November 22nd, 1963. So he lived his life, passed away. Many, many years later, we're going to be listening to a lecture of his called The Visionary Experience. I know I've had a lot of visionary experiences. Bryn, tell me about what you think a visionary experience is to you? Like, what is a visionary experience? Wow, that's a big question. I mean, there's pretty much endless answers to that question. I think a visionary experience is anything that is outside of of yourself, but yet part of yourself, but something that's outside of your everyday third-dimensional experience. It's not, you know... It could happen while you're doing the dishes, I suppose, but it's not necessarily about the dishes. Um, Just thinking of something that connects you to the source, something that connects you to the greater. um, And what do you get out of that experience? Oh, what do you get out of that experience? Uh, Some humility, I would say, and some perspective on maybe how important you know, you feel like the things happening in your life are or your struggles, all of those kinds of things I feel like are put into a different perspective that um, 
maybe makes them not so intense anymore when you kind of see how you're connected into this other giant web and, and, you know. So you're able to get outside yourself and have this experience with this bigger field of energy, this greater mystery. Yes. And because of that, it kind of minimizes some of your experiences in this dimension because you're seeing them as trivial and far less important than you're making them. Right. Or you just see, you're able to see not only your perspective, but all the other perspectives or perhaps the source of why something is happening. Or maybe you're able to even problem solve it. Or maybe it's nothing concrete like that. Maybe it's just like, you know, uh, a visionary experience about the little speck of dust that earth is in this vast cosmos and maybe you know the thought train you go on uh with that so just yeah any kind of change in in a something that provides you with a greater perspective though right you're getting this visionary experience is expanding your consciousness yes expanding what you would normally process and then you're gaining from it because it's giving you that greater perspective so you know it could take many forms Many cultures have different ways of expressing the visionary experience. In Western culture, good old U.S. of A., where we are, there's not really a lot of room for it. You don't see a lot of shamanism going on in America. Really, the only place where shamanism shows up in a consistent way is at these music festivals uh, with groups of people on psychedelics, whether it's electronic music or the, the Grateful Dead-style jam band music that they have here. That's pretty much where it shows up. Other cultures around the world, they have shamanic festivals and rituals that kind of build around that experience here. Maybe not so much, but back then when this was recorded so long ago, I think it was recorded in the sixties at some time, probably Prior to 1963, since he passed away then. So we'll just say 1960. Maybe it's in the 50s. But this is Aldous Huxley then talking about visionary experiences. Here we go. Aldous Huxley, the visionary experience. Uh, I want to begin this talk with one of those questions which... Inquisitive children ask their parents and stump them completely. Uh, I want to begin this talk with one of those questions which inquisitive children ask their parents and stump them completely. So a question like, why is grass green? But this is a question about precious stones. Why are precious stones precious? And obviously it's extremely difficult to find any rational reason for this. It's uh, certainly no economic reason, no biological reason why people should have spent an immense amount of time, energy, and money uh, on collecting and cutting and setting colored pebbles. And there must be uh, some much deeper psychological reason for this strange behavior. Now, this question was asked many years ago by Santa Yana who came up with what seems to me a partial explanation, but I don't think it's a complete final explanation. He said that in his opinion, precious stones were precious because they seemed to men 
to be the nearest approach in this world of perpetual perishing, of, uh, of passing away, they seem to be the nearest approach to the permanent and the eternal. A precious stone that does appear to remain exactly as it is generation after generation. And Santayana assumed that the, it was because this was the nearest approach in our world uh, to something that was intrinsically eternal that the precious stone took on its precious quality. Well, I think there is something in this explanation, but I don't think it's by any means the complete story. I think there are other compelling psychological reasons why uh, we value precious stones as we do. Um, I'm going to quote a passage from Plato, which I think throws a lot of light on this subject. It comes from the uh, Phaedon, the dialogue. And here, uh, Socrates is talking about the ideal world, which he says is more beautiful and real than the actual world in which we live. And he says, in this other earth, the colors are much purer and more brilliant than they are down here. And the very mountains and stones have a richer gloss and lovelier transparency and intensity, hue. The precious stones of this lower world are highly prized cornelians, jaspers, emeralds, and all the rest, are but the tiny fragments of these uh, stones above. In the other world, there is no stone but is precious and exceeds in beauty every gem of ours. And he goes on to say, the vision of this world is a vision of blessed beholders. Well, this is, it seems to me, a very interesting passage inasmuch as it makes perfectly clear that the ideal world of Plato is not a mere metaphysical construction, a kind of inference from uh, the facts of our present world of its imperfection. Uh, it is a visible world, a world which can be seen with the inner eye and which has certain uh, describable peculiarities, such as the colors being much brighter and it being filled with stones, which are very like our precious stones. And I find here probably what is the basic psychological reason for our immensely high valuation of precious stones, which is this, that these are the objects in the natural world which most nearly resemble things which are seen with the inner eye by people who have the gift of vision, and which even those who do not consciously have the gift of vision have some kind of unconscious inkling of. It seems to, as it were, remind them of something going on in the back of their minds, which uh, on a subterranean level they know something about. And uh, we get a certain confirmation of this by the greatest of the Neoplatonic philosophers, Plotinus, uh, who says <clears throat> that everything in the intelligible world, which is much the same as the uh, ideal world of Plato, everything there shines. And he says that for this reason, the most beautiful thing in this world is fire, which is a transference, as we see, from the inner facts of the visionary world into the outer fact. This is a transference of value from something which is highly esteemed in the inner world into the outer world. And says the most beautiful thing in this world is fire, 
And it's interesting to find, for example, in Ezekiel's description of uh, the Garden of Eden, he speaks of it being filled with gems, filled with what he calls stones of fire. As I hope to, to show later on, uh, this um, richness of uh, gem-like uh, qualities, which is, is found in the visionary world, uh, does explain many very strange uh, facts about uh, certain types of art, and many facts about the curious uniform quality of uh, religious traditions, folklore traditions, traditions of the nature of the golden age and the afterlife, which are found all over the world. We'll talk about that later. Meanwhile, let us speak about the accessibility of this visionary world. Well, we look at the records and we look around and we find that a certain number of people can enter this visionary world spontaneously, that they can go back and forth between the two worlds without any real difficulty, and that probably quite a lot of children inhabit the visionary world for quite a bit of the time. And uh, also we find uh, that this visionary world is very highly prized by people and that they, they will go out of their way uh, to get into it, that if they do not visit it spontaneously, they do a great many things which help them to go into it artificially. The visionary experience is so highly prized that uh, throughout the ages of recorded history, uh, people have done their best to induce visions. They've tried to go to this other world by various artificial vehicles. And there are a number of ways which have been worked out. Uh, there are psychological ways, uh, there are physiological ways, there are chemical ways. And uh, it's worth, I think, describing a few of these methods. Uh, for example, uh, it is possible to uh, go into the other world uh, through hypnosis. Uh, quite a number of... Um, of people can, in a certain stage, a rather deep stage of hypnosis, uh, can and do enter some kind of visionary world. It's a very interesting experience if one has ever watched people suddenly passing out of uh, what seems to be a kind of sleep-like stage into a, a world where they are seeing very clearly very strange and interesting things. I think this hypnotic visionary world is probably not quite so brilliant and extraordinary as some of the other visionary worlds, uh, the, the other aspects of the visionary world which can be touched in other ways. And then, of course, there are the uh, purely psychological methods. Uh, there are the methods of intensive concentration, which we find in the uh, various yogas of the East and uh, in the so-called uh, spiritual practices of the, of the West. Uh, which do undoubtedly produce these uh, visionary states. Then there is the method which has been employed in many, many parts of the world, the method of complete isolation, the limiting, uh, the cutting down of sensory experiences to the, to the greatest possible extent. And now this is a very interesting thing. Within the last few years, a number of experiments have been made in modern uh, psychological and medical laboratories with what is called 
limited environment that, uh, for example, people like Hebb at uh, McGill and Dr. Lilly at the National Institute of Health in Washington have uh, employed various means for cutting down the uh, input of sensory stimuli to the extreme limit. Uh, Lilly, for example, uh, cut down external stimuli to such a point that he, there was nothing um, practically that uh, was affecting him from without. He immersed himself completely in a bath of warm water at a temperature of 94, breathed through a schnorkel so that his face was completely covered, therefore no part of his skin was feeling anything except a uniform temperature. Uh, he tied himself up in a harness which didn't permit him to move more than a tenth of an inch. He was in a light-proof and soundproof room, where the interesting fact is that within four hours, he and the, those colleagues of his who submitted to this extremely drastic treatment were seeing very, very strange visions. Uh, and <laughs> uh, where the deprivation of external stimuli is not quite so complete as it was in Hebb's experiments, uh, similar visions will be seen within 24 to 36 hours. And now one of the interesting facts here is that the great majority of these visions were extremely unpleasant. Uh, they were so unpleasant that I, uh, I've asked Dr. Lilly what they were, and he has always declined to tell me. I don't know what the, the, they must have been very unpleasant indeed. But uh, now this is extremely interesting in view of the historical facts. We find both in the East and the West a long tradition of isolation that hermits and would-be visionaries have retired to the most desolate places where they could cut off an enormous amount of external stimuli. In the 4th century in the Thebaid in Egypt, immense numbers of hermits and cenobites uh, lived in the desert, cutting themselves off as far as possible from uh, external stimuli. And we see the same thing with the uh, Tibetan lamas and the Hindu monks uh, in caves and in, um, in remote places in the Himalayas. And they did it all for the same reason. And again, what, uh, uh, what is very interesting is that we find from the records that a great many of these monks of the Thebaid had visions and had extremely painful and disagreeable visions. In virtually every picture gallery of the world, you will see paintings of the temptations of St. Anthony, which are diabolic visions which have thronged in upon the saint. He did have a certain number of beatific visions, but he had also a great many of these very unpleasant visions. And it's interesting to find the historical records confirming everything that has been found in recent years by laboratory work. Over and above uh, uh, these psychological methods, there are a number of um, physiological methods of inducing visions by changing body chemistry. One of the strange facts is that by inducing certain changes in body chemistry, we do appear to open the door, so to say, which separates our ordinary everyday selves from this remote visionary area of the mind. One of the ways, uh, the physiological methods, is of course the method practiced in the Orient, the method of, of breathing exercises. Well, all breathing exercises uh, culminate in 
in one thing, which is prolonged suspensions of breath, which may last a minute, several minutes even. But when there are such prolonged suspensions of breath, there is naturally an increase of carbon dioxide in the blood. And it is now well known that an increase of carbon dioxide, either induced in this way or else brought to the blood by inhalation, does produce very strange visionary psychological experiences. So that we see again here that these uh, time-honored yogic methods have been again confirmed by recent laboratory work showing that if you do something which increases the CO2 in the blood, you do automatically give yourself access to this visionary world. Then again, there's the question of fasting. Here, in, in many uh, cultural traditions, fasting has been used precisely for the purpose of creating uh, a visionary experience. The, the red man in this country uh, habitually and systematically resorted to fasting for the express purpose of achieving visionary experience. It was one of the initiation rites of young men in many of the, of the Indian tribes. And, of course, fasting has been used to a very considerable extent in all the major religions. Similarly, uh, lack of sleep, cutting down on sleep, will also produce uh, effects of, the, of this same kind. And even some of the more violent physical austerities, such as self-flagellation, uh, also, I think, produce certain chemical changes which facilitate the coming of visions. For example, uh, a violent uh, self-flagellation will release great quantities of histamine, great quantities of adrenaline, both of which may have profound psychological effects. Uh, when we look back on the uh, history of religious practices and the desire for visions which has existed, I think, in, in all cultures, we see that these curious ways of facilitating the visionary experience have been employed, and we now know the reasons, in as far as they are biochemical, we know the reasons why these practices were adopted. Beyond these methods of inducing visionary experiences, there are the directly chemical methods, and here again, there is an enormous history in this field. Anybody wishes to know the detailed story of it, uh, I recommend a very interesting book by the French uh, anthropologist Philippe de Felice called Poison Sacré, Sacred Poisons, uh, which is an account of all the purely chemical methods used in both civilized and primitive cultural traditions for the purpose of getting people into the visionary state. Every kind of substance has been used for this purpose, and the interesting fact is that in the past, the majority of these substances, these mind-changing, vision-inducing substances, have been dangerous. Uh, opium, of course, is a dangerous substance. Even dear old alcohol is a dangerous substance when used uh, to the extent which uh, it has been in the various religious traditions. Boca is a dangerous substance, hashish is a fairly dangerous substance, and many of them uh, have certainly uh, been effective in producing a visionary experience, but have 
been effective at very considerable cost uh, to the physiology. People have paid a great price. Even the, the uh, traditional Hindu drug, the drug Soma, which is described in the Vedas, uh, this produced certain visionary effects without any doubt. But uh, it was so poisonous that even the great god Indra felt extremely ill after taking too much uh, Soma, and uh, that ordinary mortals could actually die of it. This really startling fact about recent pharmacological uh, developments is that a number of chemical substances have been discovered in recent years which permit the opening of the door into the uh, visionary world uh, without inflicting serious damage upon the body. Uh, enormous changes in consciousness can be brought about without hurting uh, the body. And this is an extraordinary effect. Uh, some of these substances are, are related to substances existing in nature. For example, mescaline is, is the active principle now synthesized in the Indian peyote. And incidentally, peyote is one of the few traditional mind-changing drugs which uh, has been taken for many centuries by the Indians and whose use is spreading now throughout the western United States, right up into Canada, uh, has been taken without uh, uh, producing addiction, without uh, causing degeneration among those who take it. And beyond this synthetic mescaline, there are various others, lysergic acid, uh, the, um, the most recent of them being the active principle of the sacred Mexican mushroom, uh, which was synthesized by Hoffman in Basel in Switzerland. My friend, uh, Professor Roger Heim of Paris, the mycologist, told me that uh, he had recently returned from Mexico and had gone down to visit an old witch doctoress friend there, bringing her a number of the pills which Hoffman had synthesized and had given her some of these pills, which she'd taken and was quite delighted because they, they produced exactly the same effect as the mushrooms, and she was more specially delighted that now she could practice her magic at every season of the year instead of having to wait for the mushroom season. <laughs> so that this is one of the great triumphs of modern science, that the a witch doctor in Mexico will be able to send a postcard to Dr. Hoffman in Basel saying, have important magic to do, please send 100 capsules for air mail. These are some of the chemical ways of, um, of opening this door which leads into the, into the other part of, of the mind. Uh, experiments, of course, have been made by eminent psychologists for a long time. William James, for example, made considerable experiments with nitrous oxide and, uh, incidentally, was much blamed by some of his uh, colleagues for such a frivolous undertaking and for taking it so seriously and was defended by Bergson in his uh, Two Sources of Religion and Ethics where he said we must remember that the nitrous oxide was not the cause of Professor James's remarkable experiences, it was the occasion that it removed certain obstacles which permitted this other material to come through. The obstacles could have been removed by purely psychological means or by other psychophysical means, but this, uh, this particular means did open the door, and the nature of the experience which came through is not affected by the nature of the key which is used to open the door. 
And uh, this is a very interesting passage in Bergson, and I think it, it's fundamentally true that uh, although there seems to be something rather discreditable and unfair, so to say, about the possibility of opening the door by a means so simple as, as psilocybin or uh, LSD-25, uh, yet uh, there seems to be no reason to doubt that what comes through is of the same nature as what comes through by our breathing exercises or fasting or any other means. Now, let us uh, briefly talk about the nature of the, of the experience. Now, of course, every visionary experience is unique, as every human being is unique. But uh, th these things do not occur at random. Although they are unique, and although there are considerable variations, yet we do recognize in the majority of these experiences a kind of family likeness. They belong to a certain class. And we realize this very well if we read such a book as uh, Heinrich Klüver's book, monograph on peyote, Berinder's book on peyote, uh, a whole mass of, uh, of uh, religious literature on visions and so forth, we see that there is a kind of resemblance running through this whole family of experiences. And I think we can say that the highest common factor in all these experiences is the experience of light. Now, the light experience uh, is of several kinds. There is the experience, which is recorded in a great deal of the literature, of what may be called undifferentiated light, just a, uh, an enormous burst of light, unembodied in any particular form, just a great flood of light. I think it would be true to say that this experience of the undifferentiated light is generally associated with what may be called a full-blown theophany or a full-blown mystical experience, uh, that experience which uh, transcends the subject-object relationship, which produces a sense of solidarity between the experiencer and the universe, which gives the experiencer a sense of the basic all-rightness of the universe, uh, an understanding of such a phrase as occurs in the book of Job, yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. This is, a, seems to me, a characteristic feature uh, of the mystical experience. And um, uh, this kind of experience, and the, uh, the experience of the same order when associated and interpreted in terms of a, uh, of a theological uh, uh, frame of reference, when the experience is interpreted in Christian terms as the unity of knowledge of God, this kind of experience is, as a matter of fact, generally associated with this experience of undifferentiated light. And, of course, this kind of uh, light experience is recorded again and again in the, in the literature. The most familiar case is the case of St. Paul on the road to Damascus. We find... Uh, uh, Mohammed's call to being a prophet uh, came when he woke up in the middle of the night uh, perceiving a light so intense that it caused him to swoon away. Plotinus entered several times into the light and was, as he says, swallowed up in divinity. We find the Dante describing uh, paradise 
as being illumined as though by two suns. I mean, there is the ordinary sun, and then there is this other light, which is like the light of a much more powerful sun uh, coming through the ordinary sunlight. Then in more, more recent times, we find the tremendous uh, light experience of St. John of the Cross when he was confined by his brethren to prison in Toledo. And Jacob Burma records uh, light experiences of this same kind. And one could find, I think, without any difficulty, hundreds, literally hundreds, of such uh, uh, experiences recorded by eminent or less eminent mystics. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, this kind of experience is by no means confined to the uh, eminent people who have a great power of expression. Uh, as uh, such collectors of experiences as uh, Dr. Rainer Johnson in his book, The Watcher from the Hills, uh, as he has shown a great many perfectly ordinary people who don't have this uh, this gift of expression and who have achieved no celebrity as uh, religious leaders do in fact have experiences of exactly the same kind. Uh, now, let me go over this very briefly because we haven't got very much time, but I received a letter from an unknown correspondent in England. Uh, she, she described herself as a woman in her 60s and she was saying... Uh, my whole life has been influenced by something that happened to me when I was a schoolgirl of 16. I was in the kitchen. I was cutting a slice of bread off a loaf to toast for tea. And suddenly I became aware of this tremendous light all around me with a sense of extraordinary happiness and bliss and a sense of the complete all-rightness of the universe. I was absolutely overpowered by this. It was a dark November afternoon. The whole place was flooded with this light. The experience lasted in clock time, perhaps for a minute. Then it uh, went away, but the memory of it has sustained my life ever since. And uh, it has completely abolished any fear of death that I may ever have had. Uh, I adore life, but I'm not in any way afraid of death. Well, these sort of experiences, as one can find uh, set forth in Rainer Johnson's book are really quite common, I think. A great many people have had uh, these kind of experiences of the undifferentiated light, which, as I say, is associated with something in the nature of the full-blown mystical experience. And here it is quite interesting to go into another um, cultural tradition and to find that in the Buddhist tradition, what is called the clear light of the void, this tremendous uncolored light, is uh, again associated with the ultimate uh, liberation experience. And that the other lesser lights, particularly the lights which are embodied in forms, are associated with the lower so-called pre-mystical visionary experiences. Well, uh, let us now come down to what is strictly the visionary experience, which is the experience of light in its differentiated form when it is embodied in shapes and in, in personages, in, uh, in landscapes and so on. And here again we find, curiously enough, a certain uniformity. We, we find uh, likenesses running through the various descriptions of this. Uh, for example... 
the experience will very often begin with a, a, a vision of what may be called living geometries, geometrical forms, brilliantly lighted, continuously changing. These may modulate into uh, some kind of geometrical objects, such as carpets, mosaics, and so on. There may then be tremendous visions of landscapes of an extraordinarily brilliant and glowing nature, of architectures often encrusted with gems. And the landscapes, too, uh, are frequently recorded as encrusted with gems, which again throws a light on what Plato was saying in the, his dialogue uh, and the reason for our high estimation of precious stones, because we see these things in our visionary experience, and even if we don't know about them consciously, they in some way remind some area of our mind of this strange world, which uh, I think exists in, in every mind, although often deeply buried. And then there are sometimes uh, uh, visions of figures, strange faces, and here there's a very interesting fact, which is recorded again and again, both in the spontaneous cases and in the induced cases, that when faces are seen, they are never the faces of people that the uh, experiencer knows. He does not see the face of his mother, his father, his brothers, his friends. These are entirely new faces. And this, I think, casts a great deal of light on this whole uh, uh, conception of angelic figures. Of course, it's entirely incorrect to suppose that the angels are the spirits of the departed. They are of another species altogether. And this is a very interesting fact that at the sort of antipodes of our mind, in this remote area of our mind, it is so far beyond the personal unconscious that we don't see anything connected with our own private life or even with the, the general life of mankind. We see something quite different. When Blake saw these uh, figures, he, he said, these are the cherubim and seraphim. And he knew all about them. They were very large. He said the seraphim are 120 feet high. And um, they live in these extraordinary landscapes. And he described the landscapes. He says the, the, the landscapes and the architectures in which they live are highly organized. And they are articulated beyond anything which the mortal and perishing sight could possibly imagine that they were, in some sense, super real. They were more real uh, than ordinary reality. And Blake saw these things all his life, except for a period in his middle life when, for some reason, visions didn't come to him. But this was a, a regular type of experience for him. And he was constantly seeing these faces, which were not faces of anybody he knew, but they, they were these uh, strange figures from somewhere else. And another curious fact about these figures is that they were never doing anything. This is one of the things which uh, recurs again and again in the descriptions, that these figures, when seen, are not in action, sort of doing nothing in particular. And this again corresponds very closely to the conception of these angelic uh, entities in the, the other world who are not engaged in action. They are engaged in the beatific vision and contemplation. And I think this is one of the reasons why the most powerful and moving religious art is always static art. The great religious symbols like the 
Khmer Buddhas, like the great uh, Egyptian gods, like the primitive Greek statues, are static. They are not doing anything. The great uh, Pantocrates and uh, and uh, Madonnas of Byzantine art, they are also completely static, not doing things. And this is precisely the nature of these beings who are found uh, in the other world, the world of vision. Let me very briefly uh, go into another very interesting fact about the visionary experience. That the visionary experience occurs by no means only behind the closed eyelids. In very many cases, the visionary quality, the quality of the vision, so to say, spills over into the external world so that the experiencer, when he opens his eyes, sees the outer world transfigured, sees it as incomparably more beautiful than he sees it at ordinary times, sees it as glowing with an intensity of light uh, and significance and life, which is something he simply does not see at all in his ordinary state. Now, uh, there are plenty, I think, plenty of poets and artists who have spontaneously seen the world in this way. You will find, for example, admirable descriptions uh, of the nature of this transfigured vision of the world in uh, some of the writings of the Irish poet A.E., George Russell, uh, which I recommend very much. These are very subtle and uh, psychologically penetrating descriptions of the kind of things that the visionary sees in the external world. And uh, I think it would be true to say that uh, quite a lot of children probably see the world in this transfigured way. They see it very much, I think, as Wordsworth describes himself as seeing it as a child, describes it in the, in the great ode on the intimations of immortality in childhood. As Wordsworth said, he, he looks at the outside world and it has the glory and the freshness of a dream. And he goes on to say that as he grew up, this glory faded into the light of common day. And uh, this I know wherever I go, that there has passed a glory from the earth. And the world became, so to say, very boring once again. And th there's a particularly beautiful passage in one of the centuries of meditation of Traherne. And uh, I would like to, to quote this passage of Traherne's, which describes his experience as a child. He was brought up in Shrewsbury, I think it was, in a small town which had walls around it at that time. And he describes what, what it was like uh, looking out from his home uh, into the world around him. He said, The dust and stones of the street were as precious as gold. The green trees, when I saw them first through one of the city gates, transported and ravished me. Their sweetness and unusual beauty made my heart to leap and almost mad with ecstasy. They were such strange and wonderful things. The men, oh, what reverent and venerable creatures did the aged seem, immortal cherubim, and the young men, glittering and sparkling angels, and maids, strange seraphic pieces of life and beauty. Boys and girls tumbling in the street and playing were like moving jewels. Eternity was manifested in the light of the day, and something infinite behind everything appeared. And then, with much ado, I was corrupted and made to learn the dirty devices of the world. 
which now I unlearn and become as a little child again, that I may enter into the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say that the kingdom of God is already here, if we would only allow ourselves to see it. He says, the world is a mirror of infinite beauty, yet no man sees it. It is a temple of majesty, yet no man regards it. It is a region of light and peace, did not men disquiet it. It is the paradise of God, it is the place of angels and the gate of heaven. Traherne, I think, describes a, a state of mind which uh, is relatively common. I, I mean, I think there are many more people who have had in childhood and even have occasionally in their adult life glimpses of this uh, transfigured world who realize that the, the world is incomparably more beautiful and more interesting than they normally give it any credit for. You will find a number of these uh, uh, references to this kind of visionary experience of the external world in Wordsworth. It's a very beautiful poem where he speaks of the effect of, of sunset, how this sort of added extra transfiguring power evokes this, uh, this sense of, uh, of visionary otherness. This poem goes, No sound is uttered, but a deep and solemn harmony pervades the hollow vale from steep to steep and penetrates the glades. Far distant images draw nigh, called forth by wondrous potency of beamy radiance that imbues whatever it strikes with gem-like hues. In vision exquisitely clear, herds range along the mountainside, and glittering antlers are descried, and gilded flocks appear. Thine is the tranquil hour, purpureal eve. But long as godlike wish or hope divine informs my spirit, ne'er can I believe that this magnificence is wholly thine. From worlds not quickened by the sun, a portion of the gift is won. An intermingling of heaven's pomp is spread on grounds that English shepherds tread. Let's go very briefly now into the uh, question of the relationship of these kinds of visionary experience with art and with a traditional religion. In the sphere of art, I think it would be true to say that whereas by no means all art is of a visionary nature, there are quite important aspects of art which uh, have a visionary quality and which owe their power precisely to this with a reminder which they bring to the beholder of the visionary world. Uh, it is very significant, for example, that the, the Holy of Holies in almost every religion, the furniture of the altar, is always composed of what may be called vision-inducing materials. It is composed of gems, of glittering metals, of polished marble, and so forth. And uh, there is evidently something in works of art made of these vision-inducing materials, which is itself vision-inducing. Uh, um, another essentially vision-inducing art, which played a great part at one time uh, in our own civilization, is the art of the stained-glass window. Now, anybody who has been into the Sainte-Chapelle in Paris or into Chartres Cathedral uh, must realize the extraordinary visionary power which uh, uh, these windows have. It is possible by means of stained glass windows to turn the whole of a vast building into one single jewel. One is inside 
a great jewel. And the effect is, I think, most extraordinary. A very significant fact, it's recorded uh, by the abbot of Saint-Denis, Suget, that uh, in the 12th and early 13th century, there were always two collecting boxes in the churches, one for the poor and one for the setting up of stained glass windows. And whereas the boxes for the poor were often empty, the boxes for the stained glass windows were generally full, showing how highly these, uh, these vision-inducing uh, objects of these stained glass windows, how highly they were prized. Uh, I can't go into many of the other types of visionary art, but there are quite a number of them, and uh, it's not difficult to sort them out from the ordinary run of art. Uh, they have a, a peculiar quality, and I think they owe uh, their great power to uh, this uh, capacity which they have for evoking within us uh, a kind of memory, a kind of awareness of that which lies at the back of our minds, and which uh, we then see realized in front of us in the external world. A very interesting and curious fact is that many of the popular arts have been essentially visionary arts. It's as though the, the ordinary unlettered people had a peculiar predilection for a visionary experience as manifested in art. I mean, take some of the most uh, ordinary and everyday of, uh, of popular arts. Take, for example, the art of fireworks. Well, this goes back a very long way in China, and it goes back into the later Roman Empire. There are descriptions in the poetry of Claudian of the most fantastic firework displays, which are at least as, as elaborate as any display we see today. But, of course, they were not as good as the displays today because there was not, at that time, the knowledge of chemistry which we now have, which permits us to uh, put into our fireworks an immense range of colours which was undoubtedly quite impossible for the Romans to, to duplicate. Well, then another popular art which uh, has played a great part throughout history is the art of pageantry. And this has been used, of course, by kings and prelates from time immemorial to impress people. I mean, the, this is a visionary art, and it impresses the beholders to such an extent that uh, it has been regularly used by men in authority to transform de facto power into de jure power. I mean, the, uh, they are, in fact, powerful. But the, the, the whole art of pageantry, the coronations of kings, the processions, the state entries, processions of popes and so on, all these things are methods for um, persuading people by this kind of visionary magic that the brute fact of power is in some way um, power by right divine. And I think there is no question that the whole history of, of pageantry has played an enormous part in the uh, consolidation of power. And of course, in our own day, we have seen the extraordinary power exercised by the pageantry devised by the Nazis. I never saw the Nuremberg rally each year, but those who saw it say that this was possibly the most extraordinary uh, ballet ever put on any stage by anybody, that this was one of the most magnificent uh, uh, pure spectacles. And closely related to pageantry and ritual, of course, uh, is a theatrical spectacle. 
the theatrical performances are of two kinds. There is the, the drama, and then there is spectacle. And very often, I, I regret to say, in uh, contemporary productions of, of old plays, of Shakespeare, for example, the spectacle is often made to interfere with the drama, but both have their legitimate place. If you look at the history of it, it's very interesting to see what enormous time and trouble and money has been used, has been expended on spectacles. The Elizabethan and Jacobean masks, for example, were fantastically elaborate. And there's a record of one mask put on for Charles I by the Inns of Court, which cost over £20,000 for a single night's entertainment. This is an extraordinary fact that quite senselessly people will go to this immense trouble, spend this immense amount of money for this curious kind of experience, which uh, incidentally the adjective which is often applied to it is very significant here, which is called a transporting experience. It transports you, takes you out of this world, puts you into the other world. And of course the, the whole art of spectacle has developed with the uh, advancing technology. The spectacles of the 16th and 17th century were limited by candles. So this was the brightest light you could possibly put on anything. And it was not even until the middle of the 18th century that you could have an oil lamp which uh, would burn without smoking and stinking. Uh, the the argand wick and the, and the um, uh, glass chimney are quite late inventions. But then, by the very end of the century, in the beginning of the, of the 19th, we begin to get tremendous uh, technological advances which permit uh, enormous increases of uh, visionary spectacle. We get the invention of the parabolic mirror, first used in lighthouses, then very quickly used in theatres for projecting beams. We get gas at the beginning about 1800. We get limelight in about 1820. And then by the 1880s, we get uh, electricity and the possibility of creating prodigious effects of light, which uh, to this day uh, fascinate people. I mean, after all, the successes of the modern musical are entirely successes due to the strange visionary quality of, uh, of um, these performances. And another very significant name the instrument which was invented in the 17th century by Athanasius Kircher, the magic lantern, this device for projecting colored images in a dark room upon a white screen, received this name instantly. I mean, it was given this name, it has carried it ever since. It was felt to be an absolutely appropriate name, that it was something magical, something out of another world, which was uh, thrown into this world. Now, let us still more briefly discuss the relevance of these facts of visionary experience uh, to the literature of uh, religion and folklore. In all the uh, religious traditions, uh, the paradises and other worlds have precisely the qualities which are given in the descriptions of the visionaries. The paradise is a garden, it is gem-like, full of the stones of fire, as Ezekiel says, where there are buildings, they are buildings made of precious stones, as in the New Jerusalem. And in all the Buddhist and Hindu and Japanese paradises, again and again you will find these descriptions which correspond exactly to the descriptions given by Weir Mitchell and Havelock Ellis of the, of the peyote experience, or given in the various 
accounts of visionaries of their spontaneous experiences. So I think there is no doubt at all that all this kind of folkloric and popular religious tradition stems directly from this uh, this strange visionary experience, which has played a very important part, I think, in the creation of uh, these ideas of the other world. And another quite interesting fact is where precious stones uh, are not common, but where glass is known, glass becomes an extremely important visionary uh, adjunct. Even in the New Jerusalem, where the walls are actually made of precious stones, glass plays a very important part. There is a sea of glass in the center. The streets are made of transparent gold, glass-like gold. In the Celtic traditions, the islands of the dead, where the dead go, is called Inisvetrin, the island of glass. In the Teutonic tradition, the dead go to a place called Glassberg, the glass mountain. And uh, again, these curious uh, uh, uniformities keep cropping up in all the various literatures. And to my mind, there can be no doubt at all that uh, all this can be fitted into this same picture which we found at the beginning of this lecture uh, in the description of Plato of the ideal world. That this is part of the natural history of the mind. That, uh, we have these kind of experiences that even those of us who don't have them normally and only catch perhaps occasional glimpses or perhaps never have glimpses of them, yet have some kind of, uh, of obscure knowledge of them at the back of our minds, and that when we read about these things or see them represented in works of art, they do strike a chord and evoke something. It's a very strange thought, I think, that we see a continuous spectrum running all the way from such popular arts as fireworks and pageantry and theatrical spectacle, right through popular religion, right through the visionary experience of those having what are now called pre-mystical states, right through to the undifferentiated light, which has, as a matter of historical and psychological fact, always been associated with the full-blown mystical state. So that, as I say, there is this full, complete spectrum, this gamut of um, experience from the simplest and the, what seemingly the most childish to the extreme limit of the religious experience. And I, for one, find this, this fact profoundly interesting. It seems to me one of the most curious and fascinating uh, topics which one can discuss in relation to this strange piece of work, which is a man. Thank you. Huxley. Huxley. <laughs> okay, well, we're back after that incredible conversation. It was very dense. It was a very dense conversation. There was a lot going on. But it's a seminal conversation, Aldous Huxley being so influential. There were so many things that he brought up that I could touch on. I took a lot of notes, as we always do. But really, it's morally about I want to talk like him. If I could just talk, I, I can't even do an impression. He has a very articulate, chill voice. But yet soothing. It's like, here, let me tell you about the nature of the universe. 
The ideal yeah. world shines is what he said. And I just kept thinking about how in these higher frequency experiences, matter is more light. And time and time again, the similarities were pointing out that that higher dimension is jewel encrusted, at least from a human mind perspective, light, gold, our attachment to jewels as humans is because they're triggering some memory of the composition of higher dimensions. I don't know if that's true or not. It's an interesting theory. It makes sense. What do you think about that, Brent? Yeah, I actually think that makes a lot of sense. Um, we've definitely been fascinated with jewels and shiny things and uh, light experiences from all sorts of different things. I mean, I what I noticed through his whole talk was all the different examples he gave and things that he talked about was that everyone has access to these experiences in, you know, some people were just standing there and it yeah, happened yoga, to them. Other right. people were, you know, using chemicals or different things to induce them. But everyone has access to this and that the experience seemed to be a memory, that it wasn't like a hallucination or something that was just created, but it was more of a deep memory or knowing of something the way is or was before you were here, before you had this overlay of reality. And that's those similar experience. It was like, that's like we're tapping into the fabric of the universe that everyone's seeing these similar kinds of beings or lights or just the feeling. I love that part talking about the feeling of the, the basic all, all rightness of the yeah. universe. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was really that's very true. And I feel like that's a common experience. I feel like so many people that talk about visionary experiences have that as their you know, basic background of the experience. Well, I like how he said that the visionary experience could be defined as simply as a change in our body chemistry. Yeah. And when he relayed that experience of that girl having that experience just spontaneously in her home, mm -hmm. it was just some sort of change in body chemistry that opened up that portal that's accessible to everyone via psychedelic plants, via breathing, whatever you're method of getting there, yoga, however you get there, it's possible. And it's set up that way for us. It's, it's part of the human experience. The very basic part of the human experience is being able to access these higher dimensions through visionary experiences. It's all really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, children talking about, I mean, he mentioned a couple of different times about how children seem to be much more able to be in that state naturally. They're able to move in and out of that state spontaneously. And I would definitely say that that's true in my experience with children and just memories of my own childhood that the world's, uh, is much more fluid in that visionary state than, you know, after we learn all these things that we're supposed to believe about reality as we are become adults yeah we get conditioned by our environments and our superiors whether they're parents or teachers or religious figures in our lives they just kind of put these paradigms in place and then off we go defining our reality in a way that may not include some of the information that could be found in these higher dimensions that's what i think is really mm -hmm. interesting he kept bringing up like I said earlier, the similarities in how we describe these higher dimensions, stones of fire, jeweled, encrusted 
all of these terms, it just constantly reminded me of the DMT experience where people talk about the jeweled tapestries. I've had experiences with the jeweled tapestry landscapes and the consciousness that kind of bubbles out of that. It's very hard to put into words, but it seems like we're all going to the same place. And so what is that place? It's another dimension. Is it the highest dimension? No, it's probably not the highest dimension you can possibly access as a being in this multiverse, multidimensional multiverse. So it's just a massive step up beyond the third dimension. I think that's really interesting. And he said the term that I often hear from other spiritual people and other people that have powerful visionary experiences is that they're more real than real. Yes. That's something that always comes up. You, You hear that a lot more real than real. They're having this experience. That's a more powerful resonant and penetrating experience than what they're experiencing in their human body in the third dimensional life. They get past that. They're having a more real than real experience which seems to supersede our dimension. It includes our dimension, but yet is also so much more. So that's probably why it feels more real than real because we're in this limited bandwidth third dimension. And then you have these expansion experiences and then you're plugged into all that extra information. It's more real than real. Brian, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. And that's, I guess, kind of what I was trying to describe at the beginning, which he uh, describes in such a better way, but... uh, With an accent. Yeah, with an accent, yes. Uh, Just talking about that, you know, changing your whole perspective by putting you in more real than real. You think that this is how it is and this is what's going on. and, And then when you are able to see it from that perspective, it becomes so much grander and so much different. Well, it gives you that context like we were talking about. And we all need to be reminded of that context, that higher frequency context. We have these lecture episodes. They're fun. We're we're learning something from Aldous Huxley directly, which without recording technology and the ability for me to do this even, we wouldn't be able to do that. That would have been lost to history, the 50s or the 60s, whenever that very rare recording was actually taking place. He died in 63, like we said, so it's before that. It's pretty miraculous. So for me, these episodes are like a reminder. It's like, okay, what am I learning from this? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what am I what am I trying to put out there for you guys, the audience? And that's really reminding us of that bigger thing, that greater mystery, with the understanding of the like he said, the basic all rightness. Like Everything's okay. Everything's infinite love. What he's describing is the feeling of infinite love transcending all time and space. And when you're in a place that transcends time and space, you're resonating with the deep core infinite love. That's the true divinity, the true expression of the divine. And everything's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's all right. And did you hear that when he was talking at the end about visionary art and he was talking about how that art oh right the art when the art is created that just looking at that art is you know creates visions itself like you're imagining sitting in this 
you know, gold and jeweled encrusted chair in the clouds or your, you know, and he's of course speaking of art from his time. And, and I was thinking of more modern visionary art that we see now. Um, and it is, it's both so much of it is breathtaking because there are these people who are able to translate those, those visionary experiences like onto paper or into music or, you know, into all sorts of, of different displays in the visual field of our third dimension, which to me is pretty incredible. I, I think that would be really awesome to be able to do that. Well, when he's talking about the visionary art throughout history, it's really interesting that he points out that the materials themselves were designed to trigger these visionary states. They didn't have the insane technology. Well, from our perspective, the insane technology that we have today, probably a thousand years from now, it's going to seem very primitive, but the insane technology that we have today, we they didn't have any of that. So that one still image would trigger all of these biochemical reactions just by looking at the painting and then you reflect on the deeper meaning. It becomes alive for you. It was a different way of processing that information. And what he was saying is probably nine out of 10 times these artists were working that visionary aspect in. They wanted you to feel something. They wanted you to be activated in some way Mm -hmm. that you would feel the weight of their artwork. Right. And that they could take you to that place. That's uh, the common place we can all go to. Yes. That's more real than real. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you being here, Bryn. We've, had a great conversation. We learned from Aldous Huxley, wherever he, he is now, he's having a great time watching us and listening to us talk about him. Uh, do you have anything to say before we go? Vinylforceherbs.com. You can always <laughs> check out her website. Her incredible blends. No, that was, uh, no, I don't really have anything else to say. I All feel right. like we touched on everything, but I think uh, we did yeah, as well. let's just. Remember to sit on that basic all rightness of the universe. Exactly. And next week we're going to be talking with someone about the law of time. So until then, I'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth.